You're listening to teaching from the Word of God, provided by Black Forest Chapel. This is the church where you will find biblical teaching and authentic worship with family and friends. We are located in Black Forest near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs, Colorado. We invite you to join us this Sunday. Find our location, worship times, and more at blackforestchapel.org. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place. Though I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. Every blessing. And every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be your name. When the sun's shining down on me. When the world's all as it should be. Blessed be your name On the road marked with suffering Though there's pain in the offering Blessed be your name And every blessing you pour out I'll turn back to praise When the darkness closes in Lord, still I will say Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name, Jesus. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Oh, blessed be your name. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Oh, blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. 
salvation purchase of God born of his spirit washed in his blood let's sing that together this is my story this is my story this is my song praising my Savior all the day long this is my story this is my song praising my Savior
the daylight. Christ on the cornerstone, for offering, and it's wonderful to give back to the Lord what he has given to us, and so part of that is giving to the church, the church body, and all of its needs, and so what we've done for many months now is had online giving. If you'd like to do it that way, please continue. We also have the box in the back if you prefer to drop uh, your tithing in there, and we're going to have more music as we go through the offering time. So that song that we were just singing, is anybody familiar with the background of that? What was the inspiration behind it? Okay, good. You're learning something this morning. So um, that song was written, um, Reuben Morgan from Hillsong had landed in Stockholm, Sweden for a conference there. And the day he landed in Scandinavia, 77 people were murdered um, in a mass shooting and bombing. Do you guys remember that? guy dressed as a police officer came in to a camp, he'd set up some car bombs, slaughtered 77 innocent people. So this team from Hillsong lands there the day this event happens. They're just overtaken with the people's grief. They said one out of four people in Norway were impacted by that event. They knew someone or knew a family that had lost somebody or had been injured in that event. And they're supposed to do this big worship conference. And it's like, how in the world are we going to now do this? And this country is just reeling from this. And Scandinavia isn't exactly known to be a real godly Christian nation. So they just felt people were hopeless. And he said that we sat down with our guitars that day and we decided we're going to write a song that speaks of what is our hope? What is our foundation? He said, you know, you're one mass shooting, you're, you're reeling from that effects and suddenly the sirens are wailing again with something new. Tornado hits and you're cleaning up from that. And then a wildfire hits. Um, or in our society, we're still dealing with a pandemic and we're hearing numbers going up. And people are scared, um, uncertain, and what is our foundation? You know, how do we respond to people? How do we even check our own hearts and deal with our anxieties? Is it our efforts? Is it what we can do 
No, it's not. Everything that we do is built on Jesus, and we need to have that foundation no matter what, but especially when dealing with some of the things that our society gets to deal with. So we're going to sing that song again um, from the beginning to the end and just kind of, you know, worship, let these words roll over you. Let them be encouragement for you this week. Oh 
and you guys can be seated. I hope that wasn't me. (laughs) I guess I won't walk that way. I don't squeal like that at home, just to let you know. Well, maybe sometimes. Depends on what's going on. Thank you for the music. We're continuing our sermon series in the book of Exodus, so if you have your Bibles, please open up to Exodus chapter 2. Pastor Mike, Sheila, family are having a well-needed, uh, much, much-needed vacation, and so we'll continue to pray for them. Uh, we'll be also praying for other people in the church body. People are usually out and about this time of year as they take vacations and go other places. And with that, before we dive in, let me go ahead and ask the Lord to come into our presence as we study his word. Lord, we thank you for being our God, our cornerstone in the midst of grief and trials and difficulties, but also in the midst of successes and joys. You were always there. Lord, we never want to walk away from you. We want to stay close to you regardless of what's going on. Lord, I pray that as we continue to um, work through our societal issues of the pandemic, as well as uh, what we read on the news about people tearing things down, I pray that Christians have a strong witness, a way to speak truth in your love in a situation like this. We know that a lot of people don't want to hear it, but it has to be said. So Lord, help us to take those opportunities that you present to us to do that very thing, to show the love of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, your plan to others, because we might be the ones they need to hear from. And we never quite know how you'll use us, when you'll use us, but we do know that you use us. And so, Lord, we want to be good instruments in your hands to bring your grace and your truth to others. And, Lord, part of that is praying to you, reading the word, evangelizing, discipling. It's all good stuff, Lord, that you have built us to do. We should do it. We, we find ourselves filled with wonder when people come to the Lord after they leave their life of sin. And so, Lord, help us to be a big part of advancing your kingdom here on earth. We're glad we're here today. We pray for those who are uh, out for whatever reason, vacations or sicknesses. God, be with us all as we... Enjoy the day, and also enjoy your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Exodus chapter 2 is where we're at. Mike started this sermon series two weeks ago, and so, of course, he went through chapter 1. And in chapter 1, we learn that the Israelites are being oppressed. This is a very familiar story with so many of us, that the Israelites are being oppressed because the Egyptians are oppressing them. And the Egyptians are oppressing them because Pharaoh is afraid. It's amazing how fear can grip the heart and make you do things or make others do things they should not do. He's afraid of the growing population of the Israelites. Now, that was God's plan all along, to make this nation grow and expand. And so that's what's going on. And in verse uh, 7, we read some details about that, that the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly. 
and became exceedingly numerous, so that the land was filled with them. And then down in verse 12, after Pharaoh starts his aggressive uh, attacks to work them ruthlessly, we read that the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. It was God's plan all along to grow this people, to bless the people with growth. Because of Pharaoh's fear, he begins a system of oppression that eventually leads him to create this ridiculous plan to convince Hebrew midwives to kill Hebrew babies. It's so ridiculous because why would any woman want to kill a baby? Why would Hebrew midwives want to kill Hebrew babies? It doesn't make sense, but fear tends to do that. It makes us act irrationally. And so that's what he tells them, but as we learned last week, they don't agree to it wisely. And so then he tells his people, Egyptians, in verse 22, every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but every, let every girl live. So now Pharaoh is giving this order to the Egyptians. It's on them to kill the Hebrew baby boys. At this point, we're just looking at the national level, more of the bird's eye view of what's going on with the nation of Israel. But in chapter 2, Moses, who's writing this, zeroes in on one family. It happens to be his own. This becomes a semi-autobiographical account, and yet he writes it in the third person. He's talking about his own birth and his own, uh, his own childhood, and it has captivated audiences for the past 3,000 years to the degree that Hollywood has created movies about it, like the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt. It has really captivated our imagination of this baby boy being protected and then growing up to be this leader that he didn't want to be, but he, was, he became the leader, and we'll, we'll learn that later in Exodus 3 and on. And so this story is a great one, not just for Hollywood, but great for us because we get to see godly virtues take place in other people as they try to keep this baby alive. And what we're going to find in Exodus 2, verses 1 through 10, is that three women are pivotal to keeping Moses alive. One of them acts with faith, the second acts with courage, and the third acts with compassion. And that's what you see on the screen, that faith, courage, and compassion are the ingredients of a godly life. That's not the only ingredients of a godly life, but that's what we read here. And so that's what we're going to study today. Faith, courage, and compassion. So with that, let me go ahead and read verses 1 through 4 as we look at how one woman demonstrates her faith in order to save her baby. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. As I mentioned, Moses, writing this account, moves from the national discussion to a family discussion. So anyone reading this for the first time would most likely say, there's something special about this family 
And he's zeroing in on it. He wants us now to focus on this family for a certain reason. What the reason is, I don't know. We'll just have to continue reading. If you were to read this for the first time, you and I are very familiar with the story, so we know how it ends. But imagine you're reading it for the first time. Well, why is he focusing on this particular family? Something important must be happening. But notice how Moses keeps names out of it. He doesn't mention Amram, Jochebed, the mother. He doesn't mention Miriam or Aaron, the older siblings. He doesn't even mention the baby's name, Moses. Names are out of it because he wants us to focus on what God is doing in the family. He'll bring up names later, but right now, names aren't as important as what is God doing with this particular family. So he gives us some details. A Levite man marries a Levite woman. They have a baby. We'll learn very soon that this isn't their first. This is actually their third child. Now, are we surprised that they are getting married and having children? After all, they're slaves. They're being oppressed. And yet, we also learn in chapter 1 that they're growing exceedingly numerous. So even in the midst of oppression, God is blessing them and causing them to grow. Now, being an engineer, it's hard for me to pass up a good calculation. If you were to look at the population equation for what's going on here with the Israelites starting at 70 people, Jacob and his family, and ending up with well over 2 million over a 400-year period. That's great growth. That's excellent growth. It's not off the charts, but what's miraculous is that they're growing so well in the midst of oppression. This is where God's hand starts working mightily to grow them even though there's subjugation, oppression, tyranny, and even state-sanctioned murder to kill the baby boys. So God is definitely in control. This family's getting married, having kids, no surprise. But what is surprising is how they respond to Pharaoh's edict. And Pharaoh's edict is to kill the baby boys because I'm afraid of what's going to happen. But Amram and Jochebed were not afraid of the king's edict. And we know that from Hebrews chapter 11, Because in Hebrews chapter 11, we read in the the roll call of faith that by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and because they were not afraid of the king's edict. So there's no fear here because they fear the Lord and they know that following the Lord is more important than following Pharaoh's edict. However, they live in Egypt. They have to deal with the situation at hand. And so the mother realizes that he is a fine child and she's keeping him hidden for three months. I want to mention two things about what we read read there. First of all, she's hiding him for three months. For many of us who have had children, you know that in the first three months, children tend to be um, needing only a few things. Feed me, keep me warm, and keep me clean. If you do those things, the baby's probably going to be content, but after a certain point, babies start doing things like moving around, rolling over, crawling, giggling, crying, just on their own. After about three months, it's going to be hard saying, shh, don't say anything, keep quiet. Babies don't do that. They won't understand. This is the point at which she cannot hide this child any longer. All of her options are out. Pharaoh hasn't rescinded his edict. Pharaoh hasn't died yet. The edict is still in place. The baby's growing up. She can't move away. They're slaves. What is she going to do? What's the only opportunity open for her? 
I'm assuming those were questions that the parents asked themselves. What are our choices in saving this baby? So she hit him for three months, but then she had to go a different route. Something else I want to mention is that Moses, when he writes this account of himself, said that he was a fine child. Now, it might sound like he's boasting, but he's not. He's actually linking this story with Genesis chapter 1 in a very subtle way. Your Bible might say that he was a beautiful child or that he was a good child. The Hebrew word here is tov, and tov is good. But it's not a quality that is meant for admiration as much as to see how God has designed something and that design is fulfilling its purpose. In Genesis chapter 1, God is creating the universe and God made light and he saw the light and the light was good. He goes on to say that he created the dry land and he looked at the dry land and the land was good. Same with vegetation. He looked at the vegetation he made and it was good. These are descriptions of God's design being created and that design is doing what God designed it to do. That is good. As Moses writes this account, as an older man of what happened when he was a boy, he realized that God had a purpose for him staying alive. Jochebed, the mother, is involved. We'll see soon Miriam's involved. Even Pharaoh's daughter's involved in keeping him alive. God had a purpose for him. That purpose is good. He's going to become the leader of the people who move the Israelites out of Egypt and out of slavery. God had this purpose for him, and that purpose was good. So he is a good child, a fine child, because God has a purpose for him. And that's how he understands what's going on and why he was rescued when maybe some other babies weren't. So now the mother gets a basket. And the word basket here is the same word as ark. If you look at in Genesis 6, that Noah builds an ark, the word ark is equal to the word basket, the exact same word. And what does she do? She coats it with pitch. What did Noah do when he made the ark? He coated it with pitch. So what's going on here? Moses is subtly linking this story of God doing something or about to do something significant with what God did back in the time of Noah in saving the human race. When God does something significant and people in faith respond to that, then we begin to see the hand of God moving in pretty significant ways. Now, how else would you keep a basket waterproof except coating with pitch? And that's what the mother knows. And so she coats it with this tar and pitch mixture so that it stays afloat so that the baby has a better chance of staying alive longer. So she does all of that, and here's where faith comes in. She has to put her baby in the basket. She has to close the lid. She has to put the baby in the Nile, and then she has to let it go. I don't know too many mothers who would say, oh yeah, that's, that's pretty easy. It's a day in the life type of stuff. No, this is monumental faith. How in the world can I do this except God helping me to do this? I have no more alternatives. And if I keep him here with me, he will die. I have to let him go. This is where faith, the faith of a godly person, really meets uh, with the reality of the situation. And she knows that she has no other recourse except to let her son go into the hands of the Lord.
a great amount of faith to do what she did. But I also want to stress that it's not a reckless faith. Now, faith is sometimes spontaneous. Faith is sometimes jumping right into something, but only because you have no other alternative, because it seems to be the best, situa- the best thing to do in that situation. But her faith isn't irresponsible. Notice how the mother doesn't paddle out to the middle of the Nile during the flood season, puts the basket there and paddles away. She doesn't do that. What does she do? She puts the basket near the bank of the river, among the reeds, where the water's more placid, where people are more likely to find it. She has intentionality here on keeping her baby safe, and then, presumably, she tells her daughter, watch the basket. As far as she knew... This plan may not work, and she might have to take the baby back. She has no idea what's going to happen. All she knows is, I have to release my baby, and then it's in God's hands. We'll see what happens next. So she takes the time, or she also takes steps to make sure that her baby is going to be safe. She has to let the baby go, but she wants it under the right circumstances, the safe circumstances. But she still demonstrates a great deal of faith in doing it because she doesn't know who's going to pick up the basket. It's not going to help if a Hebrew family picks up the basket, because all Hebrew boys are supposed to die. If another Hebrew family picks it up, they might as well just keep the baby. What if an Egyptian family picks it up, but they want to follow the king's edict, and they just kill the baby outright? What if they just ignore the baby? What she needs is someone to pick up the baby and have compassion. We're going to talk about that later. All of this, I'm guessing, is running through the mind of the mother. What's going to happen to my baby? I take the step of faith, and I release my baby into the hands of the Lord. Part of godly living is having that faith. And if you live long enough in the world, you have probably had to demonstrate that type of faith. And it was excruciating, but it was also quite a learning experience. And that's what God is doing with our faith. Our, our faith is so valuable to the Lord that he's not going to protect us from every wind and gale. He would rather us go through storms in life to bolster and strengthen our faith so that we become more godly, more like Christ. That's what's going on with the mother here. That's what's going on with you from a the type of situation we find ourselves in, we demonstrate this faith all the time. Finances, health, relationships. God, will you fix this for me? Can I really trust in you? It's not just for the stories of the Bible. You and I have to demonstrate this type of faith all the time. Now, I don't know your circumstances, but I know that you're human beings, people of God, going through life situations that demand this type of faith. And it can be difficult, but when you go through it, you realize just how good God is. But this is one woman helping her son. But I mentioned there's three women involved, and the next woman is actually a young girl, Miriam, the sister. But she's not demonstrating faith as much as she's demonstrating courage. Let me read verse 4 again through, the, through verse 10. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. 
Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Now, we talked about faith, and what's a good definition of faith? Um, And I'm going to give you a good definition of courage, or at least I hope it's a good definition. If I use Webster's 1828 Dictionary, which is a good dictionary because it tends to uh, take the words and also combine it with scripture or godly ideas, then faith, according to Webster, is an entire confidence or trust in God's character and declarations. Faith is about who God is and what he has said. Now, that's a great definition from Webster. Perhaps a pithy working definition might be that faith is allowing God to direct your life. Perhaps the best statement of faith or definition is from Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And this is what we hold on to greatly as Christians because we don't always get to see the road ahead of us, and that was the mother's case. But with Miriam, she's going to demonstrate a lot of courage. Now, what's, what's the definition of courage? Going back to Webster, 1828, courage is that quality of mind which enables us to encounter danger and difficulties with firmness or without fear or depression of spirits. Again, condensing that into a pithy working definition, I might say courage is to act in accordance with God's will. Courage is usually the doing aspect. Faith is the state of mind aspect. I need to think this way. And then courage is actually doing the thing that you know you ought to do. So how does Miriam, this 7- to 10-year-old girl, demonstrate courage? Well, we see that she is watching the basket. Now, how far the basket drifted from where Jochebed put it in the Nile, we don't know. But she's at a distance, but still watching it. And then she realizes that none other than Egyptian nobility and royalty come down. It's Pharaoh's daughter. She's bathing. This is a good start. I think I would rather have a group of women find the basket than a group of men only because what if the men are soldiers? What if the men are afraid of the Pharaoh? What if the men decide, I just got to kill the baby right then and there? Women being more of the nurturing types of persons God has made you to be would have compassion early on. This is a baby. The baby needs me, somebody to care for it. Does Jacobin understand where she put the basket? I'm thinking she probably had an idea of where to put it and when, but the Bible doesn't cover it, so it's more speculation. But Pharaoh's daughter comes down. Miriam sees that. Pharaoh's daughter sends a slave girl to get the basket. 
Pharaoh's daughter opens the basket. She sees that it's a baby. She even remarks, this is a Hebrew baby. I'm guessing Miriam, just watching the scene and looking at Pharaoh's daughter's face, realized this woman is not going to obey her father's command to kill babies. This woman is going to act differently. And she can get away with it too. She's Pharaoh's daughter. And so in verse uh, 7, Miriam seems to be right there. Hey, i got a great solution for you. You're not a nursing mother, but I know one. I know a woman who is nursing. She happens to be my mother, the, ba- the mother of this baby. But those details are left out. The only thing she says is, I happen to know someone who can nurse this baby, and you need that. What's surprising is that Pharaoh's daughter goes along with it. There must have been Egyptian nursemaids. Why didn't Pharaoh's daughter say, no, this is my son now, and he's going to be an Egyptian, so I want an Egyptian nursemaid to take care of him. But she doesn't. She goes along with the idea that a Hebrew wet nurse can feed the baby versus an Egyptian one. The hand of God is all in this, influencing Pharaoh's daughter But if we keep our focus on Miriam, what type of courage did it take for this young girl to approach Pharaoh's daughter? We all are different. Some of us charge in where angels fear to tread. Others of us hang back and we're a little bit afraid. We have no idea where she's at, just in her mental state. But it did take courage to approach someone you didn't know, who's in a pretty high position, not knowing what the outcome is going to be, to make a suggestion that might be rejected, but might be accepted. There's all sorts of unknowns. But that didn't bother her, because she loved her brother, and she knew what was the right thing to do. We need to take care of this baby. And Moses highlights that. He's writing this later in his life, And he realizes that his mother had the faith and his sister had the courage to do what was right to save me. And now I'm writing this account to tell you the position I'm in as the leader of God's people. And here's what happened early on. Someone had faith. Another person had courage. These are the ingredients of a godly life. And we see that wonderful things happened. And we're going to read that as we continue to go through the book of Exodus in the weeks and months ahead. Faith and courage, it's at times difficult, at times it's easier, but it becomes very situationally dependent. But the root ideas here are what we need to hold on to. As a person who loves God, I need to have the faith that he has given me. And as a godly person, I also need to have the courage to go out and do the work. Two women, now we're on the third, and the third is Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter, surprisingly, shows compassion. Because when she opened up the lid, she looked into it and saw the baby, and the baby was crying, and she took pity on him or felt sorry for him. Everything here is about compassion. And if I go back to Webster again, compassion is a sensation of sorrow excited by the distress or misfortune for another. Suddenly, racial boundaries just fade away. National boundaries fade away. A king's ridiculous edict fades away. This is a baby who needs someone, and I have an opportunity to do something about it. And when need and opportunity intersect, and I'm right there, 
to do something about it, wonderful things begin to happen. This baby has a need. I have the opportunity to take care of him. I'm going to be the one to do it. That's Pharaoh's daughter's perspective. She takes the baby. She's going to raise him. This baby's going to be her son. And we'll learn just how important this adopted Hebrew boy becomes, not only to Egypt, but to Israel. To Egypt, he becomes the path by which they become economically ruined because they won't trust in the Lord. For the Israelites, he becomes the lawgiver, the deliverer. He becomes the person who is like Christ in that he, he was one of two at the beginning, Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha show up, up, up in the middle, and then John the Baptist and Jesus show up third. So they become, he's one of the two pairs that shows up at the beginning to be the deliverer of the people. God has all sorts of plans for Moses. He just doesn't realize it. But God is also working through these three women to guarantee his survival. Because one showed faith, the other showed compassion, or I'm sorry, the the second one showed courage, and the third showed compassion. Now, as you and I work in our lives, the question is, how do I show faith, courage, and compassion? You each are going through different things, uh, difficulties with the relationships. Some of you as parents, and I'm one of those at this point, we're having to release our kids into a dangerous world. How in the world, God, am I supposed to do that? I'm afraid of my daughter driving, much less going off somewhere to school. You know, this is scary stuff. Some of you are there. Uh, I remember my mother telling me that... uh, Yes, she's always concerned about us as kids, but when she started having grandkids, she got even more worried. You know, there's just so many things to worry about in life. Uh, And so it takes a lot of courage and faith just to get up in the morning and start another day. Sometimes we think that courage is only for the first responders or the soldiers or those who run into a burning house. I think compassion is something that we do a lot in our own personal lives like calling up the doctor to schedule that appointment for your, the results of your biopsy. That takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to write that last check because there's no more money in the account, hoping that God provides the funds next month. Courage is making a phone call to try to reconcile a relationship when you really don't want to call that person or to forgive someone who has hurt you. There's all sorts of opportunities to demonstrate faith, courage, and compassion. There's people I don't want to be compassionate to because they just don't seem like they would respond very well, but that doesn't change the fact that I have to show compassion in certain situations. If I want to live a godly life, I've got to demonstrate faith, courage, and compassion wherever I'm at, just like we read in this story. And then I let God handle the rest. So if I had to give you a formula for doing this, a short formula, what would I say? Well, I'm going to call this the BFC formula. Go ahead, Noah. The BFC formula. Okay, that doesn't stand for Black Forest Chapel. 
That stands for bravery, faith, and compassion. I changed courage to bravery so it would fit, and then it would kind of fit within the church context too. Bravery, faith, and compassion formula. What is this formula? First of all, I'll say that I don't like being formulaic with the faith because sometimes we can latch on to the formula more than God. But I think this formula is pretty good. And it's not mine. It's not original with me. I have a pastor friend. known him for 25 years. He pastors a church up in Littleton. He mentored me through seminary, and we still meet for lunch from time to time. His name's Ed. Ed has told this to me many, many times over the course of our mentoring and our relationship. And this formula wasn't original with him either. A professor in seminary told it to him, so there's a lot of pedigree with this formula. Noah, here's the formula. Pray and do the reasonable thing. Sounds simple, right? What's complicated about that? Well, try it out. When you have a difficult task ahead of you, what's the first thing you ought to do? You ought to pray. I used to shortchange myself because I wouldn't pray to God for what I considered to be minor things. You know, I'll pray for the major things because God wants to hear that. But I'm not going to pray for the minor things because maybe God's expecting me to deal with it. But then I realized I was doing myself a disservice. Now, I don't need to pray and ask God, should I brush my teeth this morning or not? I can figure that out. I, God expects me to handle things like that. But it's the slight tensions at work where you know, this relationship isn't perfect or I'm trying to get this task done and God, I can't figure this out. I wasn't praying to the Lord and I told myself, why not pray to God for the small things as well as the big things? I want God to be involved in everything I do. And so I started to do that, and I would say I've seen more positive results than trying to keep it to myself and deal with it. We pray first. If we don't pray and we try to do the reasonable thing, at least my experience is, it's going to be a mangled mess. But if I pray and don't do anything, then I am not doing what God expects me to do in exercising faith, courage, and compassion. This brings the divine as well as the human together in one simple formula. When I'm struggling, I want to pray. I want to pray first. Sometimes my prayers are five seconds long because that's all the time I have. Other times I might decide I need to pray about the situation. You know, let me, let me step away from this email for 10 minutes and then come back and then press send after I, I change the wording because if I was going to send it before, it would have been a little bit too harsh. Maybe I need to wait a week. Maybe I need to wait months as I pray and I'm patient. But then eventually I have to do the reasonable thing. And what is the reasonable thing? Well, that's where the challenge comes in. How do I know what's reasonable? The book of Proverbs is a good help. It shows us what wise decisions are compared to foolish decisions. Talking with others helps. Hey, what would you do in this situation? If you were in this situation, what, did, what have you done? What was reasonable? What was right? The reasonableness of something usually involves patience, involving others, reading the Bible to find out what others, the ancients, have done. But then we, then we have to do it. I have to get out there and do something and more often than not, God changes my direction. You know, I was about to do this, and God diverts me. Just like when Paul wanted to go in Macedonia, and God said, nope, you're going to go somewhere else. That was the better thing to do. We pray, and then we try to do the reasonable thing so that we can demonstrate faith, 
and courage and compassion wherever we're at. Let's pray. God, we are only human. Uh, We are fallible. We have difficulties sorting out the things of life. Uh, We don't always know the right decision, and sometimes we're afraid that our decisions are not going to be good, and so that can paralyze us. God, I pray that um, as we endeavor to be people of a deeper faith and a stronger courage and a more tender compassion, that we will pray to you first and foremost, and then we'll do what seems to be best. Lord, we have wonderful examples in Scripture of Jochebed and Miriam and even Pharaoh's daughter doing what was right and letting you do the rest. So Lord, as we continue to go through this life of Moses and the book of Exodus, I pray that we learn all sorts of wonderful truths from it. And not just to learn it, but then to apply it into our lives. We're going to have plenty of opportunities to demonstrate our faith, our courage, and our compassion. Spirit, help us to do that with wisdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all stand? Your good.
Good morning again. You can uh, sit down just for a moment. So Tuesday night, you know, we have our upper room student ministry for middle schoolers and high schoolers. This week, we're starting 30 minutes early. So it's going to be from 6 p.m. to 8.30. And we're starting early because we're going to have pizza there. So if you have a special request for a pizza type, email me. You got an email from me, uh, I think, Saturday. So I'll be glad to take care of that. We're also going to do a service project that night. As you know, if you were here two weeks ago, we uh, planned that out a little bit. We came up with a few to do. Bring uh, jeans that you don't care about getting dirty and gloves because we might be moving some stuff around. So thank you all. I think I'm on yet. Now I'm on. Thanks, Cooper. And thank you for coming. I hope you have a wonderful day, a wonderful week ahead. Ask the Lord how you can demonstrate faith, courage, and compassion. Uh, It's amazing how this hurting world needs it. Have a great day. enjoyed this teaching from the Word of God. If you don't have a church home, we invite you to visit Black Forest Chapel in Black Forest, Colorado, near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs. You'll find biblical teaching and authentic worship in an environment that feels like family and friends. Get directions and more information at blackforestchapel.org.